Monday, March 25th. This is Ellie Podcast, live from my garage mm-hmm. once again. In the shadow of your car again. <laughs> it's an it's an old car. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic. It's a classic car. I think the last time it was driven was like 2014. Oh, what? Yeah. It has a brick behind the tire, so I actually feel like you are telling the truth about that. It's just... A, <laughs> It's it's just for decoration. <laughs> it looks like there's some muscle under there. Though. We've got <laughs> Alyssa, Alyssa Walker, Scott Frazier, Hayes Davenport is here remotely from... Hi, guys. I love hearing the description of the scene where you are. It adds some real color for me. Good. I'm, um, I'm from, from downtown Vancouver. I'm, I'm glad that you can give us live feedback as a fan because we have, at this point, replaced you with a new co-host who is sitting yeah. in with us. Michael, can you say hi to everybody? Hello, everybody. This is Michael Lenz, uh, professor at UCLA. He's joining us today to talk about everything going on in the world of housing. As I said, Hayes is out of the country uh, and possibly the podcast. So we're just... <laughs> He's fled. <laughs> um, but we're going to first start with our Ellie stories, as we do at the top of every episode. And I apologize, Michael, that you're going to have to listen to what we're going to have to go through in detail here if you Let's don't do know it. what we're going to talk about. But um, feel free to chime in at any time. We had a, kind of an interesting experience the past week. Maybe Hayes can set the scene for us. Um, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say about this week's Ellie story because it was all off I was the told record. it was off are, the are record. Are we even allowed to say that it happened? Well, we already I can say the line? I can say that on social media there are several videos of uh, the 13th District Council Member Mitch O'Farrell dressed as a kind of sailor. I would say a sailor, like yes, a Broadway version of a sailor, Broadway version of a sailor, and dancing to anything goes with the lyrics kind of slightly altered to reflect. We we attended. I'll cut through the, the mystery <laughs> here. We attended a a roast that was like a fundraiser for the, uh, the American Diabetes Association. Is that right? That's right. Um, uh, so this is a political roast held every year. They cycle through politicians in L.A. This year it was uh, 13th District Council Member Mitch O'Farrell. And we were attending. Uh, this is a sort of like fancy event where. It was very fancy, I have to say. It seems like everybody knows each other. And Beverly then, Hilton Ballroom. Mm, there you go. And then I'm just there eating chicken and <laughs> kind of waiting for the end to come. Uh, but how did we how did we end up in this situation, Hayes? Let's ask Hayes. Yeah, I think that's a good question. So, I, uh, someone who was involved in the hosting of the event—I don't know if I'm allowed to say the person's name—reached uh, out and said, uh, basically, that like, it, like, did I know anyone in the comedy world right. who would be able to help host this thing? Uh, and I mentioned Paul F. Tompkins as a friend of mine, uh, and he is a huge fan of Paul F. Tompkins, and I asked Paul. Fully assuming he would say no, he did say yes. <laughs> he was uh, excellent, as, by the way. As, yeah, he's incredible. He's one of the funniest uh, people on earth, uh, and uh, he, I agreed to because he doesn't know exactly enough about city politics to do like targeted jokes about like a specific city councilman. Yeah, uh, I agreed to help out with writing some jokes for this event. Even though he Uh, is a constituent, which was very interesting, I thought he brought some of his own experience. uh, Yeah, he is a constituent. He got a lot of play Uh, out of blaming all of the groaners on you, Hayes. Yeah, (laughs) I was was really excited about this, uh, about being able to do this. uh, And then I was unable to go. So I basically made 
uh, Scott and Alyssa go uh, to uh, to like kind of just like tell me what happened pretty much. And then I got really, really scared in the hours leading up to it because I had written a couple jokes that I thought would get Paul in trouble uh-huh. or like make people mad or were just bad <laughs> jokes, period. Uh, no, but it, you, it according went to really you guys, well. It, it went well. The, okay. There was a, ju- there was a joke about the LAPD. I think this is off the record. I don't think we're supposed well. to talk about this. About I mean, the, the quality of the jokes. The, qual- one thing that the I, quality of the jokes can, I think, be shared. <laughs> one of the things that I suspected going into this and um, that I, ca- I feel like I can confirm coming out of it without violating any kind of uh, unspoken confidentiality. I apparently did. Is, some, is, some is that my council member, Mitch O'Farrell, seems like just a generally boring person. That's all I, <laughs> I assumed going into it that this was true. And, and I came out with the, the relative confirmation that... I thought he was particularly game, which was kind of ruined it for me because he seemed to be like really enjoying... He just like was... He, you know, he's a performer. He, he was... I mean, this is, stuff, this is not off the record. He like toured on a cruise ship. Like mm-hmm. he, you know, has a musical performance background. So um, I just thought it, w- it would have been more interesting to see someone who would be less you know, comfortable in the spotlight. Also, there's yeah, only... Scott, what does he have to, what does he have to do for you, Scott? He bit for you. <laughs> that was, that was it. The The entire night was, it was about... All he did was dance? The entire night was about his, his past as a, a, uh, a cruise ship dancer. To me, uh, that is not enough to fill an evening. Mm. <laughs> that's all I can, High standards. That's all I can say. Wow. Well, I, the only thing that bothered me about the whole night was... Hey, I, I mean, I can I voted for him, all right? Okay. He, can, he can take a couple shots from me, no, I guess. I, think, I mean, it's, it was a roast. The, the thing that bothered me was looking at the program that we got and realizing, I believe it, it's been going on for 22 years, and only three or four of the honorees have been women mm. that whole time. And so... I don't know That's if surprising, surprising, especially since like our county supervisors are mostly women right now. Or I wonder if they were like, hell no, I'm not doing that. And, uh. <laughs> and maybe being way smarter than to accept right. uh, the right. ridicule of their peers. But uh, many women do tend to have better judgment about we're just smarter. Yeah, yeah. That's why we're running the county. That's a fine hypothesis. Yeah. So another L.A. story, I just wanted to to get into our housing discussion, I Mm. think, which is um, what we'll be talking about in a minute. I wrote a story this week about the prevalence of lead paint in Mm -hmm. homes in Los Angeles and across the country, a big problem. And I do think it's kind of emblematic of what we're going to talk about today is the shortage of housing, because this is a problem where you've got houses that stay in people's possession for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Maybe the original owners or the second owners bought Mm -hmm. these houses Mm -hmm. Never renovated, never did anything, mm-hmm. grew up, raised their children, their mm-hmm. children are gone. And then because we haven't built enough new housing stock or this missing middle housing stock in the in the city of L.A., you have this issue where people are moving into these older homes or there hasn't been newer stock built, which would be safer from all sorts of in all sorts of factors from like earthquake safety, ADA. Yeah. We had knob and tube wiring in our, you know, um, in electrical wiring in our house. So just to begin that conversation of housing, I wanted to hear from Michael Lenz. We, we wanted to bring him on before, and we heard that you've done some other podcasts about housing uh, recently, so we will ignore that. Um. Totally. Never happened. <laughs> Never happened. 
<laughs> some of our friends from the from the housing crisis pod. Um, what's the official name of that? Give me shelter. Give me California well, know, housing crisis. Housing, 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 housing podcast. They had Michael shelter. on a few yeah. weeks ago, and it. Um, I think it, you had a great conversation with them, and we'd also like to continue the conversation because we. Mm-hmm come up against a lot of housing myths and a lot of questions about housing that we want to talk about. Um, So first of all, a great introduction to our guest. Do you want to talk about what you do at UCLA? Yeah, so I'm uh, a professor of urban planning and public policy at UCLA in the uh, Luskin School of Public Affairs. Uh, The work that I do is all surrounding housing and, you know, how various issues related to it, you know, eviction, neighborhood change, segregation, uh, housing subsidies. Um, and, you know, I always come to housing questions with, you know, an interest in how to improve the lives of people that don't have a lot of money. And um, housing is one way in which governments tend to interact with uh, families and households on that level. And so that's kind of what drew me to that work. And I, I, we, we wanted to especially have you on because I think there's been a few recent stories that are that you've things that you've reported on or researched? What do you call it? P- reports, studies? You got all sorts of. Yeah, I mean, I be. think we, in the the <laughs> academic parlance is you know articles, papers, books, <laughs> studies. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So you've had a few things recently. We write that, slowly. You write, you know, <laughs> actually. We talk you. You, you, ac- you write actually timely stuff. We <laughs> come know. up with something after a few years. It takes a long time. Maybe somebody looks at once. But I think one one issue that we you you had a really great report that came out of um, the Lutzen School. It wasn't authored by you mm-hmm. specifically, right. but um, just to bring it back to the the housing crisis that we're facing, first of all, in the state. Um, something that's happened over the last few weeks that we've been talking about is Newsom, our new governor, mm-hmm. um, who may or may not support high speed rail, wants to build three point five million units of new housing in the state, but we're not quite sure who, how he's going to do it. Right. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this paper article study? Um, (laughs) I don't know what it's actually called. So, um, but they, it's called a reality check for Newsom's plan to solve the housing crisis. Yeah. So my, my colleague, Pavel Makinen, um, who surely will be listening to this later, uh, at some point, but I'll probably say a bunch of bad things about him anyway. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, yes. And uh, one of our students, great student, uh, Spike Friedman, they uh, they looked at essentially how feasible or realistic uh, building that that kind of housing, those kinds of numbers are are going to be under the zoning uh, that we have um, statewide. And so, you know, the way zoning works is a, it's a local thing, but you can look across you know city uh, zoning designations just to see how much uh, how how many new units could be built if we built everything everywhere you could, right? Which of course that's not going to happen. Um, but our zoning capacity doesn't even reach, you know, what governor Newsom Newsom would want us to want us to do under that 3.5 million estimate. Um, so, you know, as usual from the, uh, from the UCLA school of build more housing, which, you know, I think we're more complicated than that, but that's sometimes how we're Uh, painted like, you know, we think that if you do need to, if you do actually want to build that kind of housing, you need to change zoning and and change the way that we allow housing to be built or don't allow housing to be built in in most uh, cities across the state. So when we talk about um, zoned capacity, what we're really saying is uh, if you looked at each parcel of land, Mm -hmm. what is the maximum number of residential units that could be built there? You know, it could be zero or it could be um, hundreds of units potentially. 
Um, and so if there is this shortfall, the as it currently stands, we have cities and counties that are responsible primarily for determining how many residential units can be built on any specific site. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot recently, uh, not just in, in the current legislative term, but also going back to last year with uh, SB 827, is whether or not cities and counties are actually responsible enough with the, the zoning power that they have uh, or whether the state needs to start overriding them in some instances. And sounds like if, uh, if Newsom's plan is realistic or if it is ever to be realistic, um, if it's a goal that the state is actually pursuing, then there would need to be some sort of change made to the way in which local uh, governments are able to uh, zone parcels. Is that accurate in your opinion? I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, and, you know, there are some cities that are, you know, doing an okay job of allowing more housing to be permitted and built. Um, LA would certainly say they are doing a great job, uh, doing a great job. And I think they have some programs that are pushing the city in the right direction, but there are a lot of roadblocks and incentives for cities to do the wrong thing when it comes to building housing of a lot of different types. And, you know, I think the state, you know, under thinking through, you know, Scott Wiener's thought process with SB 50, with SB 827 as a predecessor, the idea is to pull, I think, some of those powers away from uh, localities who, even if they all have, even if many have the right intentions, have incentives against uh, allowing more housing to be built. Sometimes in some cities, local homeowners, local uh, voters don't want more housing to be built. That's not the interest that they have in their community or the that's not the belief they have about how to improve their community. And so if if that's what your you know, voting base often you know, pushes you away from, then you know, what do we do? Do we how do we find ways to accommodate more people? Uh, in, in our zoning regimes. And, you know, I think a lot of the answer does have to do with, uh, you know, pulling not all maybe, but certainly some of, of the, of the decision-making away from, uh, the local sphere. I don't think it's usually a very participatory democratic process that mm -hmm. leads to, you know, these zoning decisions being made or, or, right. So like two recent examples, I think we've talked about Seattle before, but we talked about Minneapolis very recently, yeah. which you commented, I think, to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. You had a great comment. You're from, you're from the area? Yeah, from, I'm from yeah. St. Paul. So, so you have firsthand yeah. knowledge with their, um, you know, single family housing love. So yeah. it's, um, they, what we talked about, about what Minneapolis did, um, they basically made it, they, they ended their mm -hmm. apartment ban is what we like to say. So do you think there's something like that that could be in the cards for a city like L.A.? Like, could we do the same thing? I think I would love for us to radically reduce the amount of land that is dedicated to single family housing or more precisely, the amount of land that is zoned exclusively for single family housing. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of defense for such a tight. Uh, regulatory response um, to how to to where we build residential housing or don't you know a lot of these designations are very old uh, they you know the city has evolved um, in a lot of different ways that do not really make it 
feasible or sensible to have such large amounts of land exclusively walled off from from people to have uh, apartments as an option. Um, and I, you know, I think that there are, you know, Minneapolis, I think, said it very well and very candidly when they uh, when they implemented or when they passed this legislation, like it was explicitly to address harms of segregation and exclusive or exclusionary zoning um, that single family zoning has its uh, really had its birth in. And so I think it's to address a lot of issues of equity, not all, but a lot um, in the housing market and in housing outcomes, you have to take a hard look at single family zoning as uh, one of the main ways in which we create and perpetuate inequities in housing. I just want to return to uh, something you were saying a little earlier, Mike. Um, UCLA and Luskin have, like you said, sort of been associated with encouraging uh, building more housing and that housing production is is one of the ways out of the um, the, the housing crisis and the affordability crisis. Um, but you were saying that it's more complicated than that, and that isn't really um, the entirety of your position. Um, and we have seen cases where, like Vancouver, where I have now, has produced a huge amount of housing, but it didn't necessarily um, bring down prices. Uh, or the thing that, it, that actually seems to have helped now is they're kind of choking off how much uh, speculation um, is, is allowed in the, in the housing market here. But how is it more complicated than just uh, just opening up zoning and, and building more housing uh, for, for you? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Hayes. Um, you know, I guess first I'll, I'll note that, you know, that we do have colleagues that are absolutely on the other side, I would say, of, of this notion that we need to build more housing and we need to, you know, deal with much of our housing problem through zoning, um, you know, Nanya Roy, Michael Storper, they've been uh, public about, uh, you know, their take on, on housing. Um, so, you know, I guess I've got to separate out the Manville Monkinen lens side from, from their side. Um, but you know, how also, how is our side a little bit more complicated than that? I mean, I, I think that we very much support, um, you know, increasing subsidy. So I'm, I've, I did all of my earlier research on housing vouchers, public housing, and I support much more funding in that direction. Um, we don't, I think a lot of people think that we can kind of inclusionary housing our way out of, uh, the, the housing problems at the very low income or even medium low income end of the income spectrum. And, you know, I think a much more efficient and sensible uh, and equitable way to, to, to do that is to radically increase subsidies. Um, so I, that's one piece. I think that um, renter protections are, are, are essential and important. Um, and I think, you, you know, those who actually look, you know, hard at SB 50, especially to a lesser extent, SB 827 last year, probably like you have to you have to see that there's a lot of language and policy in there uh, specifically for eviction uh, protection and other tenant rights, uh, things that we do need to uh, beef up even in a relatively tenant friendly state like California. Um, so, I mean, those are certainly two pieces of the puzzle that, um, you know, I don't, I think are absolutely as essential as building more housing. Um, so, that is one way in which, or a couple of ways in which I think this is 
you know, more absolutely more complicated. Yeah. So inclusionary zoning is generally uh, referring to um, I, I think that's like typically what we think of as as affordable housing, capital A, uh, capital H, where there are uh, affordable units included in a mixed rate uh, development. Um, these are, are have actually come under fire, I think, from from both sides of um, yeah. of a uh, strictly demand centric um, conception of, of fixing the housing crisis versus a, a more supply centric version. Um, on on the one hand, I think inclusionary zoning uh, has has been often said to not actually be strictly targeted at the people who need it the most. Uh, and on yep. the other hand, um, they are expensive units to build. And so the, the, they make market rate housing more expensive and it's hard to produce them uh, at scale that would uh, actually alleviate the housing crisis. That's inclusionary zoning. You also brought up subsidies. Are you talking in that sense of, uh, are you talking about that in the sense of uh, specifically rental vouchers or um, like government owned housing or, or what specifically do you mean about subsidies and, and why would that be more effective in your view? Yeah. I mean, on the, inclusionary zoning side, you know, there's just not, there are not a lot of good examples out there nationwide of finding like the mix of market strength or demand with the right inclusionary housing policy that has produced a bunch of units. So if you want to think about this from, you know, the purely like low income tenant perspective, which is, you know, the perspective we should probably care about the most here it's not likely to benefit a lot of people. It's always, there are always like people you can point to and say that that low income family lives in that building and and isn't that great. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. But is the re is there, is there some other way we could have built more housing for more people at that affordability level? Usually I think the case is, is yes. And I'll get to that in a second, you know, so from that perspective, we're just not reaching enough people. We're, and like you said, I don't think we're often reaching the right people necessarily, you know, um, as far as really being able to do a good job of income targeting there. And then from the, yeah, the developer and supply perspective, you know, if we do think that, um, creating more market rate housing does have some kind of benefit to, you know, to somebody, um, whether that's through filtering down the road, whether that's through reducing, um, you know, uh, or, you know, allowing for more vacancy and more supply that could hopefully, uh, benefit people in the here and now, um, you know, it costs more money to build housing if you've got to give away some of, some of it, uh, or there's less profit to build housing if you've got to give away some of it for cheaper. Um, you know, I don't, and, and then, you know, we're looking at something like housing that we all need and we all think is a good thing, especially when we're sitting in it. Um, and we're saying, let's tax that to create more of that (laughs) when, you know, we could just tax everybody or we could tax the gains of the people sitting in, you know, million dollar, you know, half a million dollar, multi-million dollar houses that are, you know, increasing in value. Um, we could tax all that kind of stuff and get a whole lot more money to now we get to the second piece, I hope, uh, subsidize, uh, people's, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, rent or housing. Um, and you know, I think on the voucher side, you know, this is a, this is a, you know, a federal program. We're not, you know, increasing those budgets, but we should, 
Um, we should for keep... instance, uh, Section 8 in Los Angeles has had the, I believe the wait list has been closed for over a decade at well, this they, point. Well, they, they reopened the okay. wait list, if I recall correctly, about two years ago. And okay. I mean, I, I don't want to quote the number in my head that, uh, of, of people that, you know, Rush roll, to get on. roll down to get on that wait list, but yeah. the number would sh- would shock and sadden all of you. Right. Um, it was a big number. <laughs> and, and so like we have these, this enormous demand for these subsidies. Um, and that, you know, and public housing, you know, we, we did a whole lot to dismantle a lot of public housing in the last, uh, 15 to 25 years. And much of that was probably a mistake. Um, we just haven't done a very good job of maintaining a lot of those properties and we demolished them instead. Sometimes we gave away the land for, for cheap, you know, we've gone in the wrong direction, um, on, on the subsidy side, but we have some answers as how, as how to do it better. We're just really doing it. And so now we have kind of a different challenge because like you said, we got rid of a lot of our public housing or places where we could house people affordably. And now the city is trying to implement these emergency shelters, these, you know, Mm. whatever we're we're calling Mm. Is that what we're supposed to call them? Emergency, you know, bridge housing, housing. you know, right. So, but it's the same, you know, it's, yes, we need more permanent supportive housing, but at the very least we need to try to get some people off the street and provide them services and, and create this chain. Um, what's the problem happening there? Because we just had this report that it was the first year, um, all the council district districts are supposed to build 222 by I think next year units of housing. Right. Um, and half only half had even that, you know, that goal proposed, not all of them are, I don't think anything has been built or moved into as far as the supportive housing goal. I'm, I'm, I'm putting both bridge housing and supportive housing in the same thing. So 222 units of supporting supportive housing um, by next year, but only a few are underway. Only half the council districts are have proposed their goal amount, and then half the council districts have not got, reached their goal, and then at least one hasn't even done anything. Um, right. Council District 12, we're looking at you. So... What is the bigger... You're, you're looking at an empty chair. Oh, it's, it's Greg <laughs> oh, Smith. So never mind. Yeah, there is someone there. Um, so that's where's, an, where's Paul Koretz? Where's my city council? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we've got some other people to my, address, my too. My city council. Just so, so I know it was above there. Just yeah, just there, they were just barely above. So what's the what's the bigger... How do we solve this like more immediate problem? Mm. So you're talking about we've eradicated this historically. So how do we address this other problem where these are being fought, um, not going up fast enough, and the funding is actually, so they say, there? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, pr- to preface this, you know, I'm not strictly, I'm not really strongly a homelessness expert. Um, but obviously housing and homelessness ex- intersect, uh, in, in very obvious and, uh, clear ways. Uh, and, you know, I think given where we are, I mean, I think everybody in Los Angeles is, is an expert on homelessness and how we dodge the problem, right? Like we, we're experts on dodging the problem. We're experts, yeah. on, do- we're yeah. experts on seeing it and se- and, and shoving it, as- compartmentalizing it yeah. and shoving it aside and just going on with our day, right? Right. Um, which is just shocking when you sit and think about it. But, um, and, but I, you know, I have been in, in plenty of conversations, um, you know, with you know some great folks at the United Way and UCLA and USC and LASA over over the last few months, so I I don't have any kind of intimate insider knowledge, but I feel like I'm a little bit up to speed. The council by council problems are the, are very related and similar to the kind of city by city problems that we have that make up a statewide housing crisis on kind of a larger macro level, right? So 
the neighborhood by neighborhood or council by council story is again, you've got a not very participatory, not very democratic process of, you know, local uh, pushback um, against housing being built that leads to city council people saying, eh, right. I don't know if this is the right parcel. Uh. It's, very, it's very similar to the zoning problem exactly. at, at large, yeah. I, I think, where w- what we were talking about uh, at the top is that, is that the, the status quo for a long time has been um, that the easiest place to build anything is um, is just further out where there are fewer incumbent yep. homeowners. Yep. And if we look at this, the council districts that are um, falling behind on their goals for supportive housing, it's, it's those neighborhoods that are almost entirely uh, single family homes, right. a lot right. of homeowners and and the incumbency uh, incentive for politicians is just to, to not do anything. Right. Just the constituencies you're serving by building new housing are either people who are homeless or future residents who are the least likely to, to be voting of, yeah. of, of any exactly. parties, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious uh, as somebody who's been working in the, the housing space for a long period of time and, and also in an academic space, I, I think something that we've talked about on this show uh, is that it seems like we're seeing a really rapid evolution in uh, what are acceptable proposals for, for solving the housing crisis in California. Um, SB 827, of course, last year was a, um, a sort of watershed moment, even though it didn't make it far in the legislature. It uh, it generated this um, firestorm of, of uh, conversation. It has continued, of course, into this legislative session. Um, I'm curious, as somebody who's been in the housing space for a while, uh, how do you feel the the housing crisis has changed people's views, even academics or or just the general public, on what we need to do as a state to address the housing needs of, of the of Californians? Yeah, you know, I guess. You're right. I mean, I do think that 827, you know, was either a symptom. I think it was an indicator that the Overton window had kind of shifted on what we think is possible in housing policy. And it probably then further pushed that, you know, window into a new, new direction or made it more open. What is, how does the analogy, you know, yeah, work I here? I don't exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the window is more open. I, yes. like window, I, more open. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what's happening. Um, but, and you know, I, th- the way I think of that is in political economy terms, right? Like this, be this in enough cities, first of all, we have a democratic demographic, sorry, shift over the last, you know, 20, 25 years where, Higher income, whiter individuals are more likely to demand urban, central city, mm-hmm. higher density, slightly maybe uh, neighborhoods. So like the gentrification story that people you know, think is just kind of like this widespread millennial right. you know, thirst for cities is really just it's really more of like uh, in the la- in recent decades, last, last couple decades, like higher income, whiter people have been more interested in demanding central city living. Like why? Well, that's another conversation. Um, that has increased that, that I think leads to two changes in, in terms of political economy shifts or the politics shifts. One is that more middle-class, more likely to be white, like people are feeling like a really tight housing affordability Mm -hmm. crunch 
that weren't, that were not feeling this crunch in the past. Like they might've moved to the suburbs at a younger age. Um, and so like, Part of it is a perception change. It sounds like who is experiencing this problem. Yeah. 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 And like, and and also like this central city demand and, you know, really like decades of not building housing to keep up with demographic growth is also is itself like feeding this, this cycle of unaffordability in cities like LA and San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, Minneapolis, whatever, like, like higher, um, higher demand places. And so like that in itself just makes, like this, you know, we've had, we've had a housing crisis as long as we've had urban areas in the United States, right. Mm-hmm. Where like low income people cannot afford housing. Like that's right. been here forever, but now we've got middle-class people that also are feeling this pinch and now we call it a housing crisis. Right. And that I think is where you get, you get some bold moves like uh, SB 50, SB 27 that respond to something like that. I'm I'm curious too um, if we were to actually look back at, for example, UCLA in the the pre-recession era, so like '90s, uh, the first half of the 2000s, were people that were housing academics at at a place like UCLA would they have been supporting, as you were saying, increasing mm-hmm. subsidies, um, mm-hmm. increasing? public housing Mm -hmm. in addition to increasing housing supply as as a way to keep, is that changing? Has that been something that academics have been saying for a long time and it's just uh, not been reflected in the policies that go out? Or do you feel like that the academic consensus is really shifting on those issues? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I mean, I don't have a perfect answer at all. Um, you know, I could say, Hey, I'm not that old. I've been, <laughs> I have been doing this that long, but you know, that might be a bit of a cop out. I, I do read, I, I am supposed to also know what was being written in like 1980 in housing. But, um, I mean, I, I think like, you know, the, you know, ha- United States, like housing inquiries and research in urban areas, you know, I, and, and federal policy, I think as well, kind of, you would say is like from 1960s onward, right. Thinking about HUD, you know, and, you know, post, you know, civil rights act, um, particularly the housing act of 1968. So like ever since then, you know, like the, the, the two kind of, the two kind of conflicts were like building more housing for more low income people and like putting it in places to, uh, lessen segregation. Actually help people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, so like, mm-hmm. you know, fair, really it's right. kind of fair housing versus like affordable housing supply. Um, so, but like those two fights don't really never really talk too much about like, Hey, but we need more housing period. Right. Like that, that's, I do think that, you know, if, if you leave like housing economics research, you know, housing economists have always been talking, well, we need more supply because I yeah. see the world in terms of supply and demand terms, right? Like supply, more supply makes it cheaper. Da, 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 da. But, so like there were always studies like that. Right. Um, but I think the dominating conversation in housing policy research and housing policy activity has been like, okay, if we can't build a lot of housing in the suburbs, in the suburbs for low-income people, like we have to build a lot of housing somewhere, right? Or and and that kind of constant fight between fair housing mm-hmm. versus versus affordable housing supply. So I, I do think that it, that it's it's pretty new to have 
academics outside of housing economics talking about this a lot. So we're talking about all these different uh, classes of people who are affected by the housing crisis right now, right? You have uh, people who are homeless who need some kind of assistance to get into housing. You have low-income renters who are potentially on the verge of eviction as their rent is going up. You have uh, people who would otherwise be first-time home buyers who can't afford uh, to buy into the market right now. You have Oceanwide Plaza, which uh, just fine started there. construction again fine. this week. Uh, downtown, yeah, but is uh, in debt for $100 billion because uh, the money from China is drying up. To what extent do you think these are all totally separate markets and problems that have to be approached in completely different directions and like addressed individually or are like are they part of like a unified system where there are policies that can kind of address all of these different crises at once i think the what makes it so hard is it's is it's both you know it, it that these these are markets that are very that that are indeed very distinct in a bunch of different ways. There are a lot of housing submarkets within each metropolitan area, but like there's enough interlinking between all of these submarkets to where, you know, doing you can't you you can't completely ignore one submarket, you know, the the uh, to, to put some specificity to it. You can't completely ignore the higher income submarket and think that you can just concentrate on on the lower end again unless we just you know pump a ton of subsidy into it and then of course the if you go if you go too far mm-hmm. on subsidy in the in the lower end then you know landlords are not stupid like they'll raise the rent um you know if if you know so like this these things aren't solvable 100% that way either so i think it is both i think they're they're inter- although there's a lot of distinction between submarkets like they're linked as well. Right. What would you, what would you say to somebody who says, I, I think that um, this is something I see frequently, uh, the argument that the highest end of the market is, is basically the only one that hasn't been neglected and that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that we're generating too many quote unquote luxury mm-hmm. rentals or luxury condos um, and that those are being, purchased by like like Hayes was saying about Vancouver that there's a, a degree of speculation there that is fueling mm-hmm. uh both the homelessness crisis and um also people's inability to to find rental housing. Do you feel like there there's basis for that or is that um overblown in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, we've always new housing has always been, you know, most attainable for people with with higher means, right? Um you know, Certainly in the mid 20th century, we built most of that housing farther and farther out. And so it, we didn't have like this, you know, much messier localized problem where you are building market rate, quote unquote, luxury housing right next to um, stuff that's been there a long time. And, you know, maybe neighborhoods that we would love to protect for, you know, issues of, you know, cultural and ethnic and racial sensitivity and, um, protecting, you know, just people who are living in poverty more generally. So, you know, I think there are some things that are new there. I think in a city like Vancouver in a city like LA, like there is some international, you know, money parking speculation that goes, that, that complicates this picture and makes, 
makes the possibility that like market rate housing is going to benefit um, people that we actually should care about in policy um, less likely. So that's not great. So the, there is a degree of speculation you're saying that does occur in, in cities like LA and Vancouver that are global cities. Uh, I guess the other part of the question was, do you think it is enough to uh, significantly alter the trajectory of the housing crisis that we're currently experiencing? Right. I mean, I haven't looked enough into the, the speculation or the foreign investment story. Um, you know, my, my reading of it is like a city like Vancouver has like that has been a huge problem there. A city like LA, I think less so. Um, but it's on the list of the, the short list of cities where I would say, yeah, like that's foreign speculation is something that, you know, is a factor. Mm -hmm. Um, but probably overblown as well. Yeah. I think here less, you hear less about foreign speculation and more like, um, about like, for instance, Blackstone buying up rental right, right. Uh, properties for rent in yep, uh, yep. South LA and things yep. like that. Yeah, I'll say just anecdotally as part of my original reporting from Vancouver, <laughs> uh, whether window. or not it's a problem. I could see why people, uh, I could see why people think that it is a problem here because you come into the airport and every ad you see at the airport is for a new condo building in wow, Chinese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like, there's like a very right. deliberate effort seemingly to get, uh, money that's coming in here from China, um, to, to, to be put into condos. So I guess, um, one question that I have, let me try and present this in a fun way. So you are, you get a reservation at the, um, housing crisis solution restaurant. Uh, and you can only get one item, right? Aren't we having a good time? Uh, you could only pick one thing on the menu and, and in terms of what could do the most good, the most quickly to alleviate the most suffering for people that are going through this. I, right know, now. I know the answer so to that, the, this, by the way, already, I'm just going to preface it. Oh, but I, can't I know wait. what I would order is what uh, I was going to say, <laughs> but go ahead. Okay. Well, let's, let, let me tell you what's on the menu first. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's prefix. I, oh, I had, I don't know if I want, yeah. I had an answer and now it's not going to be on the menu. Is it? Oh, <laughs> you can order off well, menu. Let's see. Maybe it's a pretty big menu. All right, let's hear the menu. So uh, there's a secret menu oh, as well. Is this yes. in and out? Uh, so on the menu is Article 34 repeal, uh, which would allow um, cities, which would allow municipalities uh, to build public housing without having to go to the public for a vote. This fully racist policy that is law right now where cities can't, cities have to put public housing projects on the ballot. Prop 13 repeal, which would allow you to um, tax people's Homes and businesses uh, at a much higher rate than they are now, proportionate to their actual value. Zoning uh, reform and expansion, uh, basically like something like SB 50 that's on the ballot right now. Stopping foreign investment from coming or uh, like taxes on second homes, like basically things uh, designed to curb uh, speculation, uh, like like a focus on speculation. That's the fourth thing. Anything else you guys uh, want to put on the menu? I, yeah, it is your restaurant, but I was going to add universal rent control and tenant protections. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Of you know course. where my order yes. is going. Uh, yes. So those are the five options, Michael. What are you having? And the, the goal is dinner? to like stop the bleeding, kind of, is what you're saying, like to bring the most effective immediate. We, you, so basically, any any one of these things requires a huge amount of political will and uh would be tough to get through a legislative body at this restaurant you you can skip oh. all of that and 
like if you had like one uh like magic bullet of those things which one would you pull the trigger on prop 13 right now i would also say prop 13 i don't i I, I, I don't do you, do you feel like that also creates the the most or i should say alleviates the most harm in the housing market as well or just does the most good for california period uh oh yeah i mean it has there would be there could be so many advantages i i mean the the reason why i say that so readily and quickly is because my what i was going to put on the menu was tax land and throw way more money into subsidy um so, boom, you can't really tax land. You can't, you can't tax, you land tax land without property. Do, do you mean specifically, but do you mean specifically like a land value tax yeah. or just increase yeah. the, 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 like the, the tax rate right. that we currently have? Yeah. yeah. On, I mean, I'm, I'm really talking land, okay. land value taxation, but, um, you know, if, if it had to be like do away with prop 13 and then, um, my neighbors pay way more for, you know, on their property taxes. Sorry, neighbors. Um, and that's one way that we fund like a bunch of really important things. And, and then like what Scott was saying, like, look, you know, is, you know, the housing market in particular, well, I think more the, the zoning and housing supply incentives of localities are radically changed if Prop 13 goes away because they've, the only way that they can make money right. is, is on, on commercial, uh, you know, sales tax and stuff like that. Um, I, I'm curious. So as far as the zoning reform goes, and, like, and we've been talking throughout this about, uh, Senator Scott Wiener's SB 827, which would have, uh, which would have allowed for like four and five story buildings to be built within uh, a certain radius of, of transit throughout the state, uh, that didn't go forward, but he came back with SB 50, which is a revision of the same idea, um, Last year, there was a really striking moment during the conversation about SB 827, um, which was characterized by groups, I think, that a lot of people thought would be naturally aligned with the goal of increasing housing affordability, um, saying that this wasn't the right way to go about it. But um, at a certain point in the spring, yourself and a number of your colleagues signed uh, an open letter of support for SB 827. Mm -hmm. and I'm curious if you have had conversations about doing the same for SB 50 or, you know, what was it that led you to do that last mm-hmm. year? Do mm-hmm. you feel like, um, do you feel like that is something that you would consider doing in the future, uh, for SB 50? Are you running? Yes or no? <laughs> um, no, I'm not running. Uh, you know, yeah, I honestly, like I haven't even really had the time to, to think about, you know, whether I would what I would sign, whether I would sign something this year. I mean, I, you know, that I, I, we supported that effort for a number of reasons um, that are still absolutely relevant. And I think, I think the bill this year, SB 50 is superior to SB 827 in a lot of ways. So, you know, I absolutely still support that. Um, You know, I mean, the, the experience of doing so, you know, doing so of, of signing on to that was, you know, perfectly fine. I mean, I think it ended up throwing me into a public housing conversation. That's always often, not always is often kind of toxic. I mean, but Mm -hmm. that's just kind of any sort of Twitter debate I think is, is, you know, sort of tends in that direction, just tends in that direction. Yeah. It's not always bad, but it's sometimes pretty toxic. Um, but like, 
you know, I think as, as an academic at a public institution, at a public, at a public affairs school within a public institution, like, you know, you should be comfortable advocating, advocating for something that you think is supported by, by evidence and, um, you think will do good. And so that's, you know, what I try to do in small ways from time, you know, when asked. I think there were a few questions we wanted to ask you just specifically about this idea of myths, perhaps, around the housing debate. Um, one of them is one of my favorite ones. I wish I could um, summon Hayes' restaurant analogy to go through. So as your second course, <laughs> you would. Uh, we, we, we talked a little bit about relaxing the zoning uh, 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 policies of, of some of L.A. Um, I think one fact that gets circulated around not enough, which I know the answer to, but um, half of L.A.'s developable land, developable land is zoned for single family housing. True or false? So I think we just, I'm, I'm kicking myself, we just calculated this. If you look at the percent of land that is zoned residential, of the, of the amount of land that is zoned residential, that you could build residential housing, I think it's something like 80% of that land is zoned for single family only. So I don't know if you just look at... That the, is staggering. Right. Yeah. If you, I don't know if it's you look at the total area. Yeah. I don't know if you look at the total area, if it's 50%, but yeah. if you just target the, just what's already the very large amount of land yeah. that is zoned for residential in this city... I think it's like 80%. That's so that, that, that explains so much. I feel like once you, once you start with that talking point, right? right. Like that, that's, that's the way into this restaurant. I'm having oh <laughs> a restaurant conversation. Okay. So let's quickly, let's talk about something else that gets brought up a lot is the vacancy rate. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think what a lot of people yes. say is, you know, all this land is owned for residential, um, talking about the speculation issues that we talked yeah, about before yeah, and yeah. the luxury glut perhaps that people say is happening. Um, one thing that gets tossed around a lot is that there, is, there are enough vacant units to house the number of say homeless individuals that have been counted in the city right. over the last few years. So yep. we're talking about, um, I think the number is that there are the number that is tossed around is that there are more than say 60,000 units across maybe the County, which is our, most recent homelessness count um, and probably higher is going to be this year. What would you say to that as in reference to vacancy rate? Yeah. You know, if you look, if you look at say, you know, census data or the American community survey, I mean, which is, you know, the annual look from the census um, using sampling, I mean, vacancy rates right now in Los Angeles and the places that we think of as high demand and high cost are low and are not, you know, and did not suggest that there are, you know, vacant units sprinkled all over the city where people could live. Um, you know, I think what, what I hear from, you know, the developer or developer adjacent community is like, you're looking is that people are looking at vacancies in buildings that haven't filled up yet. Right. Um, and counting those units and it takes time for, for buildings to fill up. So I don't know, you know, we don't have, you know, perfect ways of, of counting vacant units in any one point in time, even, and, and even if we were able to kind of shove aside these very new units that often take a little bit of time to fill up. So, I mean, I don't have a perfect 
answer on that, but I'm skeptical that there's a bunch of empty stock sitting around. And what we talk about a lot is, go ahead, Hayes. I know this is your favorite topic. Yeah, I, I mean, I have loudly expressed uh, my issues with that uh, before, even if it is true, which I mean, it, you'll, even if you could uh, just put like every single individual who's homeless in a vacant housing unit, they're not widgets. You you can't like you would be forcing people to leave their neighborhoods and sending them out to places where there are higher vacancy rates like Palmdale, for example. It rewards places like Silver Lake and Echo Park that have built very little new housing. Uh, and have much lower vacancy rates. Uh, and it also, it doesn't allow for a way out of the housing crisis for people who currently have to live very far from where they work. Uh, like, I don't know how you explain that. If you give a, a very expensive condo to a person who's homeless, I don't right. know how you explain that to a person who is working for a minimum wage uh, and needs to has to like currently like commute two hours each way to get to work. Like it's a cudgel wheel by people who want to say that there's no way that there's a way out of this crisis without building new units. It's just a way to say like, we have all the housing we need on the market right now. And I don't think any version of that um, is borne out by uh, the facts. You just need new units that are, that are suited for the people that you're trying to build for. I don't know. Yeah, we have, we have discussed this before. I think personally, I, I disagree with the notion that, um, that it is necessarily desirable for the vacancy rate to be as close to zero as possible, which I, I think is sort of underlying the underlying assumption uh, of this this argument that surfeit vacancy is um, is is necessarily a bad thing. When um, uh, in all likelihood, it it does provide some amount of slack for people to uh, say be able to start a family and move into a somewhat larger space than they're in right. currently. Right. If, they're, if the vacancy is, is functionally at zero, then, then you're basically saying that that is, that is not possible. Um, I am curious that one of the other things that's being discussed as a, uh, a policy lover though, is a, 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 a tax on vacant units, uh, following sort of from the same place. Uh, I think the assumption being that, um, that landlords are, setting their rental rates above uh, above what they need to be at, basically hoping that they can just wait it out and find a right. uh, a wealthier tenant. Um, so do you feel like a vacancy unit tax would actually successfully bring rental rates down on luxury uh, apartments like that? Or um, is that is that something that you think is a realistic policy proposal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, again, I think the cost of administration would be high with that, with thinking about taxing vacant units. I mean, we, we, like I said, we just, we don't know every unit that is vacant. We don't, we don't, right. co we don't collect rent data. Yeah. That underlies this whole conversation. We yeah. don't collect any of this information. Yeah, yeah. We, don't, we don't know if somebody's leaving their unit empty. Right. Um, because we don't have a listing of everything in the housing stock uh, on the rental housing side. You know? one, of the, one of the things that I wonder too, is that if um, I, I think that there is some overlap between the people that I've seen suggest uh, specifically attacks on vacant residential units and the people who suggest that there is a um, like a, a, a fundamental disconnect between the topmost part of the, the rental market and housing for, low income people, but also pretty much everybody else. Mm. Um, so I wonder 
if that is if that is the case, then it kind of seems to me like introducing a tax on vacant units as a if I were putting out luxury units and I were actually saying I only want that topmost segment of the market, um, then it seems to me like I would just increase the rent. Uh, like it seems a bit counterintuitive, but I would actually just mm. increase the rent on my luxury units and say, I want those people. I don't want to lower rent and right. get and be at full capacity. So I'll just mm. take the hit and pass it on uh, in the form of, of rent hikes to everybody else. So I, I kind of wonder about that. But um, but that is definitely a, a proposal that is being bandied about right now. Are there any other myths that anyone would like to have debunked or, or ask our expert? while we have it. Well, I'm actually curious about something that Alyssa brought up to me this past week that I didn't really realize, uh, which was a study that came out that basically implied... So I had always kind of assumed that the people moving farthest out of the city center, um, like you said, Michael, um, like a new generation of residents wants to live where the action is, like closer to the heart of the city, and that lower-income people were having to move farther out and were having to drive farther into the city. I think, Alyssa, the study that you sent me essentially said that it is actually on average higher income people who are at least doing the most driving uh, in their cars to get to work. Um, I'm not sure exactly like I like to the I guess it's not a myth if that uh, if some studies have borne it out. Um, but I'm curious about that. What kind of what that kind of means uh, in terms of our impressions about the suburbanization of poverty now and uh, people who like living closer to work being higher income. Yeah. I think there's a, there are a few things wrapped in there. I mean, I don't know the answer to all of it, um, but you know, we, we, the United States, I know, I know more kind of those macro trends than LA specific. Sorry. Even though this is the LA podcast, <laughs> it's not the U S podcast, it's not the U S podcast. Darn it. Um, <laughs> America is still suburbanizing. You know, we are still like, like population growth is still a little bit faster in the suburbs or what we call the suburbs than in the central cities. Um, huge variation across the country on that. Um, LA has pretty, you know, consistent, decent population growth, but a lot of groups that have been leaving, um, over recent decades too. Um, and I mean, some of LA's actual city population growth is, um, you know, better now than it was obviously like early nineties, um, you know, around the time of the riots. So America's still suburbanizing. I don't, I know of course the rich or the higher income or the middle income drive more on average than like lower income people who often don't even have cars. Um, but as far as incomes of people in and out of the central city or at least where that growth is occurring. Um, higher income households are demanding central cities more than they used to, but they are also suburbanizing. Right. Um, just like, I mean, everybody is again, still suburbanizing in America. So, I mean, that, that plays upon another, I think, big housing myth, which is we always hear this thing that like, 50% or more, you know, it's always like more people live in cities than, than don't live in cities in the U S and that's been argued about everything when it comes to like the electoral college to, you know, the way we're, you know, housing is, is allocated, things like that. But 
I think what's important to note is it's often talking about metropolitan areas and then the growth yeah. is actually still occurring like yeah. on the fringes yeah. of the actual city. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's often something that's glossed over right. on, in the details. Yeah. Right. Cool. Is there anything that we have to look forward to from UCLA's housing team this uh, coming up this spring? Oh, I don't know about this spring. I mean, academics write very slowly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, should have, I should have time boxed you. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, some stuff that I've been working on um, in the last couple of years has to do with eviction in, in Southern California in particular. So I've got a couple of papers with um, some great colleagues at UCLA um, that uh, both looks at, you know, where eviction is most prevalent in Southern California um, and also what we call the neighborhood context of eviction, kind of what are the neighborhood characteristics that's most strongly associated with eviction, which, you know, at its heart is often a very individual story, of course, like a family loses its job, lose, you know, loses its housing. Um, sometimes those causes are very particular to people, of course, or there's a landlord that, you know, pushes people out, et cetera. But, you know, we're, we're kind of thinking, we've been looking at, you know, what are the neighborhood factors that seem to cause more displacement of this type than, than other types of neighborhood factors. So that's a piece that we're uh, working on. Um, a couple of my colleagues, um, Pavel Makinen and Mike Manville and I, we were looking at a couple different questions around housing supply. Where does it go? Um, what seems to happen after a result of, of increased housing supply? Um, we're looking at, we're doing another uh, piece of work that looks at what we call um, process versus prohibition in housing uh, supply in localities in mm -hmm. California. So like, is it, is it the fact that the regulatory process is so onerous and long and costly that seems to impede housing from being built um, versus is it more this, you know, strict prohibition on multifamily housing right. over large swaths of land that we've been talking about in this conversation. Um, so that's another, uh, another, um, project that we're, we're engaged in right now. It sounds like you'll have all the answers to the rest mm -hmm. of our yep. housing myth yep. questions yep. in a few months right. or years. Right. Not, I don't know yeah. how long it's, it takes it's you to It's really publish. a bummer that we did this, um, <laughs> on this, you know, March, March day in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> Cause so I'm right close. on the cusp of, of answering just several just solving all the problems. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then we just got to, you know, do what I say and, <laughs> and like, things will work out. You know, we just get the right, right legislators reading my stuff. No. And you do <laughs> have a big housing uh, or a summit coming up. I don't know if it's specifically housing, oh, right. but it's a the big livable, event. Livable yeah. LA. Livable that, LA. Yeah. That's April, late April 24th. You know, maybe? just I look it know. up online. Right. <laughs> livable LA people. Check it out. Um, that's going to be, a, I think that's going to be a really fun day. Um, you know, we, it's, I think, you know, what that day is going to be is just kind of, I think the best of what working at a public affairs school like Luskin is, you know, you've got, you know, experts on, you know, transportation, housing, the environment, um, just several topics that we think we know some things about and we bring in the right people to have a great conversation on each of those pieces over the day. Um, you know, that should be fun. Sounds great. Cool. Um, I think we will talk to you very soon and we're looking forward to also to a potential UCLA LA podcast right. collaboration coming up. So stay, stay tuned. tuned. Stay tuned yeah. is all we can say. <laughs> nice.
Right. Uh, Big move. podcast goes west. All, <laughs> yeah, the, way, all goes, the way west. Goes west. We're already Not pretty west. west. of the 405, but, <laughs> no, you know, right. we would never go that far west. No, but I don't recommend that. We'll either. go to west west. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Cool. It's been fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everyone, for listening to LA Podcast. Thank you. 